0: A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section Thirty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards, Chapter Twelve, Philae Part One. Having been for so many days within easy reach of Philae, it is not to be supposed that we were content till now with only an occasional glimpse of its towers in the distance. On the contrary, we had found our way thither, towards the close of almost every day's excursion. We had approached it by land from the desert, by water in the felucca, from Mahada by way of the path between the cliffs and the river. When I add that we moored here for a night, and the best part of two days, on our way up the river, and again for a week when we came down, it will be seen that we had time to learn the lovely island by heart. The approach by water is quite the most beautiful. Seen from the level of a small boat, the island, with its palms, its colonnades, its pylons, seems to rise out of the river like a mirage. Piled rocks frame it in on either side, and purple mountains close up the distance. As the boat glides nearer between glistening boulders, those sculptured towers rise higher and ever higher against the sky. They show no sign of ruin or age. All look solid, stately, perfect." one forgets for the moment that anything is changed. If a sound of antique chanting were to be borne along the quiet air, if a procession of white-robed priests bearing aloft the veiled ark of the god were to come sweeping round between the palms and the pylons, we should not think it strange. Most travelers land at the end nearest the cataract, so coming upon the principal temple from behind, and seeing it in reverse order. We, however, bid our Arabs row round to the southern end, where was once a stately landing-place with steps down to the river. We skirt the steep banks and pass close under the beautiful little roofless temple commonly known as Pharaoh's Bed. That temple which has been so often painted, so often photographed, that every stone of it, and the platform on which it stands, and the tufted palms that cluster it, have been since childhood as familiar to our mind's eye as the sphinx or the pyramids. It is larger, but not one jot less beautiful than we had expected. And it is exactly like the photographs. Still, one is conscious of perceiving a shade of difference too subtle for analysis, like the difference between a familiar face and the reflection of it in a looking-glass. Anyhow, one feels that the real pharaoh's bed will henceforth displace the photographs in that obscure mental pigeonhole where till now one has been wont to store the well-known image, and that even the photographs have undergone some kind of change. And now the corner is rounded, and the river widens away southwards between mountains and palm groves, and the prow touches the debris of a ruined quay. The bank is steep here, WE CLIMB, AND A WONDERFUL SCENE OPENS BEFORE OUR EYES. WE ARE STANDING AT THE LOWER END OF A COURTYARD LEADING UP TO THE propylons OF THE GREAT TEMPLE. THE COURTYARD IS IRREGULAR IN SHAPE, AND ENCLOSED ON EITHER SIDE BY COVERED COLONNADES. THE COLONNADES ARE OF UNEQUAL LENGTHS AND SET AT DIFFERENT ANGLES. ONE IS SIMPLY A COVERED WALK, THE OTHER OPENS UPON A ROW OF SMALL CHAMBERS, LIKE A MONASTIC CLOISTER OPENING UPON A ROW OF CELLS. The roofing stones of these colonnades are in part displaced, while here and there a pillar or capital is missing. But the twin towers of the Propylon, standing out in sharp unbroken lines against the sky and covered with colossal sculptures, are as perfect, or very nearly as perfect, as in the days of the Ptolemies who built them. The broad area between the colonnades is honeycombed with crude brick foundations, Vestiges of a Coptic village of early Christian time. Among these we thread our way to the foot of the principal propylon, the entire width of which is 120 feet. The towers measure 60 feet from base to parapet. These dimensions are insignificant for Egypt, yet the propylon, which would look small at Luxor or Karnak, does not look small at Philae. The keynote here is not magnitude, but beauty. The island is small, that is to say, it covers an area about equal to the summit of the Acropolis at Athens, and the scale of the buildings has been determined by the size of the island. As at Athens, the ground is occupied by one principal temple of moderate size, and several subordinate chapels. Perfect grace, exquisite proportion, most varied and capricious grouping, here take the place of massiveness, so lending to Egyptian forms an irregularity of treatment that is almost Gothic, and a lightness that is almost Greek. And now we catch glimpses of an inner court, of a second propylon, of a pillared portico beyond, while, looking up to the colossal bas-reliefs above our heads, we see the usual mystic forms of kings and deities, crowned, enthroned, worshipping and worshipped. These sculptures, which at first sight looked not less perfect than the towers, prove to be as laboriously mutilated as those of Dendera. The hawk-head of Horus and the cow-head of Hathor have here and there escaped destruction, but the human-faced deities are literally sans eyes, sans nose, sans ears, sans everything. We enter the inner court, an irregular quadrangle enclosed on the east by an open colonnade, on the west by a chapel fronted with Hathor-headed columns, and on the north and south sides by the second and first propylons. In this quadrangle a cloistered silence reigns. The blue sky burns above, the shadows sleep below, a tender twilight lies about our feet. Inside the chapel there sleeps perpetual gloom. It was built by Ptolemy or the second, and is one of that order to which Champollion gave the name of Mamisi. It is a most curious place, dedicated to Hathor and commemorative of the nurture of Horus. On the blackened walls within, dimly visible by the faint light which struggles through screen and doorway, we see Isis, the wife and sister of Osiris, giving birth to Horus. On the screen panels outside we trace the story of his infancy, education, and growth. As a babe at the breast he is nursed in the lap of Hathor, the divine foster-mother as a young child he stands at his mother's knee and listens to the playing of a female harpist we saw a barefooted boy the other day in cairo thrumming upon a harp of just the same shape and with precisely as many strings as a youth he sows grains in honor of isis and offers a jewelled collar to hathor this isis with her long aquiline nose thin lips and haughty aspect looks like one of the complementary portraits so often introduced among the temple sculptures of Egypt. It may represent one of the two Cleopatras wedded to Ptolemy Physcon. Two greyhounds with collars round their necks are sculptured on the outer wall of another small chapel adjoining. These also look like portraits. Perhaps they were the favorite dogs of some high priest of Philae close against the greyhounds and upon the same wall-space, is engraven that famous copy of the inscription of the Rosetta Stone first observed here by Lepsius in A.D. 1843. It neither stands so high nor looks so illegible as Ampere, with all the jealousy of a Champollionist and a Frenchman, is at such pains to make out. One would have said that it was in a state of more than ordinarily good preservation. As a reproduction of the Rosetta Decree, however, the Philae version is incomplete. The Rosetta text, after setting forth with official pomposity the victories and munificence of the king, Ptolemy V, the ever-living, the avenger of Egypt, concludes by ordaining that the record thereof shall be engraven in hieroglyphic, demotic, and Greek characters, and set up in all temples of the first, second, and third class throughout the empire. Broken and battered as it is, the precious black basalt of the British Museum fulfills these conditions. The three writings are there. But at Philae, though the original hieroglyphic and demotic text are reproduced almost verbatim, the priceless Greek transcript is wanting. It is provided for, as upon the Rosetta Stone, in the preamble. Space has been left for it at the bottom of the tablet. We even fancied we could here and there distinguish traces of red ink where the lines should come but not one word of it has ever been cut into the surface of the stone taken by itself there is nothing strange in this omission but taken in connection with a precisely similar omission in another inscription a few yards distant it becomes something more than a coincidence this second inscription is cut upon the face of a block of living rock which forms part of the foundation of the easternmost tower of the second propylon having enumerated certain grants of land made to the temple by the sixth and seventh ptolemies it concludes like the first by decreeing that this record of the royal bounty shall be engraven in the hieroglyphic demotic and greek that is to say in the ancient sacred writings of the priests the ordinary script of the people and the language of the court but here again the sculptor has left his work unfinished here again the inscription breaks off at the end of the demotic leaving a blank space for the third transcript. This second omission suggests intentional neglect, and the motive for such neglect would not be far to seek. The tongue of the dominant race is likely enough to have been unpopular among the old noble and sacerdotal families, and it may well be that the priesthood of Philae, secure in their distant, solitary isle, could with impunity evade a clause which their brethren of the Delta were obliged to obey." it does not follow that the greek rule was equally unpopular we have reason to believe quite otherwise the conqueror of the persian invader was in truth the deliverer of egypt alexander restored peace to the country and the ptolemies identified themselves with the interests of the people a dynasty which not only lightened the burdens of the poor but respected the privileges of the rich which honored the priesthood endowed the temples and compelled the Tigris to restore the spoils of the Nile, could scarcely fail to win the suffrages of all classes. the priests of Philae might despise the language of Homer while honoring the descendants of Philip of Macedon. They could naturalize the king, they could disguise his name in hieroglyphic spelling, they could depict him in the traditional dress of the Pharaohs, they could crown him with the double crown and represent him in the act of worshipping the gods of his adopted country but they could neither naturalize nor disguise his language. Spoken or written, it was an alien thing. Carven in high places it stood for a badge of servitude. What could a conservative hierarchy do but abhor, and, when possible, ignore it? There are other sculptures in this quadrangle which one would like to linger over, as, for instance, the capitals of the Eastern colonnade no two of which are alike, and the grotesque bas-reliefs of the frieze of the Mammysi. Of these, a quasi-heraldic group, representing the sacred hawk sitting in the center of a fan-shaped persia tree between two supporters, is one of the most curious, the supporters being on the one side a maniacal lion, and on the other a Typhonian hippopotamus, each grasping a pair of shears." Passing now through the doorway of the second propylon, we find ourselves facing the portico, the famous painted portico of which we had seen so many sketches that we fancied we knew it already. That second-hand knowledge goes for nothing, however, in presence of the reality, and we are as much taken by surprise as if we were the first travelers to set foot within these enchanted precincts. For here is a place in which time seems to have stood still as in that immortal palace where everything went to sleep for a hundred years. The bas-reliefs on the walls, the intricate paintings on the ceilings, the colors upon the capitals are incredibly fresh and perfect. These exquisite capitals have long been the wonder and delight of travelers in Egypt. They are all studied from natural forms, from the lotus in bud and blossom, the papyrus and the palm conventionalized with consummate skill, they are at the same time so justly proportioned to the height and girth of the columns as to give an air of wonderful lightness to the whole structure. But above all it is with the color, color conceived in the tender and pathetic minor of Watu and Lancret and Gruse, that one is most fascinated. Of those delicate half-tones, the facsimile in the grammar of ornament conveys not the remotest idea— every tint is softened, intermixed, degraded. The pinks are coralline, the greens are tempered with verdite, the blues are of a greenish turquoise, like the western half of an autumnal evening sky. End of section 34.